Good morning. I'm Sterling Fox with Ben Dooley and Phil Fegg. It is CKNW Weekend Mornings, and it's also the weekend of the Big Backyard Bio Blitz. It's time to become a citizen scientist, courtesy of the Nature Conservancy of Canada. Here to tell us more is Andrew Holland. Mr. Holland is the National Media Relations Director for the Nature Conservancy of Canada. Andrew joins us this morning from Fredericton, New Brunswick. Mr. Holland, Andrew, hello. How are you today, Sterling? I'm just great, thank you. Tell us about citizen scientists and the backyard bio blitz, please. Sure thing. Well, thanks for the opportunity. This is the second annual big backyard bio blitz we're doing across the country. Started last year during the pandemic when uh, provincial health officials in all the provinces were telling us uh, to stay close to home. Sure. And uh, Nature Conservancy of Canada typically does about 340 volunteer events each year from planting trees, counting birds, cleaning beaches, building trails for uh, coastal and and hiking trails on nature reserves. Mm -hmm. We couldn't do that last summer at all. So what we figured to, to help Canadians and people connect with the outdoors and nature is to get them to essentially find and document and identify different plants and insects and trees and birds in their own backyard or nearby green spaces. Mm -hmm. And it was really well received. There was over 20,000 documented sightings uh, that were shared. And so we're just hoping to build on that this year. So, Andrew, when this, when 20,000 submissions came in last year from pandemic-bound Canadians discovering stuff in their backyards, did you at the Nature Conservancy uh, discover anything perhaps that was unexpected in terms of, well, we didn't expect to see one of those in that part of Canada? There was, uh, and that's the beauty of, of citizen and community science is that the, the more people with... I mean, everybody has a phone these days and they're carting them around. Everybody has a camera. But by taking images, it actually shares the range of different uh, uh, turtle species or grizzly bear or monarch butterflies or different birds that are, you know, ordinarily not where we're accustomed to seeing them. Sure. So that, that's very helpful. But also in the spread of uh, managing the spread of invasive species like scotch broom in many parts of British Columbia and others like giant hogweed and Japanese knotweed, by snapping those photos and sharing it, biologists and foresters and naturalists and scientists are able to, uh, they're armed with more information so that they know where to, how to try and contain the spread of some of these non-native plants and pests and this type of thing. Indeed. So now, as was the case last year, people who have the time and the inclination can join in. They can register. So what you're suggesting to people who are enthused about this, Andrew, is that they go to natureconservancy.ca and you can click on the big backyard bio blitz and there's a register now button for you to click on. So if you register, what does that, what does that get you to? What is that a portal to? Because this is where then you can download your photographs and and other uh, information from your backyard, right? That's right. You register at that website, so natureconservancy.ca slash 2021 BioBlitz. They'll get a participant package and different instructions on how to submit photos and activity sheets for kids. Uh, They'll need to then download what's called the uh, iNaturalist app on your phone. Mm-hmm. So that so for people that are using a phone and want to upload photos that way, it's very user-friendly. 
to use. It actually geolocates your, your photo. So you can be in Stanley Park, uh, take a photo, it'll, it'll locate it right away and give you some ideas. If you don't know what kind of tree that is or what kind of bird it is, uh, it'll give you, it uses artificial intelligence to uh, give you some ideas on what kind of bird it is. So by posting it, then scientists and biologists and naturalists will confirm uh, an identification or other members will tell you what that picture is. So it's a really cool opportunity to be part of citizen science and wildlife managers, resource managers across the country use this data all the time for, for different planning, for, for conservation. Sure, efforts. indeed. So you're, con- you're contributing uh, to that. Now, for some people that like to use digital cameras, that's perfectly fine as well. All they need to do is uh, uh, visit the iNaturalist website and create an, account, create an account, and they can upload photos that way. Okay, so you talk about citizen science, and your observations matter. So so right on your website here, Andrew. Your observations matter. The power of citizen science. Last year, during the pandemic, you had 20,000 submissions from Canadians coast to coast to coast. Uh, that is powerful. And so what you're after this year is even more citizen science input. Are you expecting more? Absolutely. Um, just because last year people um, were hanging out close to home, but now that this is a long weekend, people can travel to a camp, a cottage, uh, out in the backwoods, or if they get a favorite hiking trail or around a river, lake, and stream, they can do this. So it doesn't just have to be their own backyard. Sure. There's many people that are in a condo building or a, an apartment that don't have access to a backyard mm-hmm. or a front yard. So maybe it means they go in uh, the subdivision. So so basically it's, uh, it's wherever they're comfortable to help collect data uh, from essentially green spaces and forests. And, and they do help inform conservation actions. They, they really do. They, uh, by taking part in this, any data that you upload it's used to help inform different management options by conservation groups, municipalities. So even if people upload observations of, a, of a, an invasive species, a weed or a tree or a species at risk, it's really helpful. What may, what may, what may just be their ordinary <laughs> could be the extraordinary uh, for conservation groups and, and other organizations. A- Andrew, it's a, it's a great uh, encouraging uh, message you have for us this morning. It's really good of you to uh, take a few moments out of your long weekend to share some time with us and to bring this big backyard bio blitz to our attention. And once again, I'm just going to direct our listeners to your website, natureconservancy.ca, and uh, everything will fall into place if you just make it to the website and check out the bio blitz and you can jump in uh, take a few pictures and uh, send them along andrew holland thanks very much for this we do appreciate it have a have a great rest of the long weekends joined on the line from brooklyn new york by sean chapman mr chapman is director of government relations at weed maps and we're here to talk about cannabis consumption and how it has changed during the pandemic sean good morning thanks for joining us Hey, good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us. I, I, I sort of summarized some of the information. I'm looking here at uh, at some of the sales statistics. It's all very dry stuff. Um, cannabis products in BC, Sean, are getting cheaper and more potent, and its year-over-year sales have doubled between 2019 and 2020, according to a new report from the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research. And it goes on and on, and it's terribly dry, but I basically boiled it down to this. Pot smokers no longer want to share joints, 
but they want joints to share. Sean, pre-rolled sales, because of the pandemic, are through the roof, aren't they? Well, I, I think there's a lot of statistics in there um, that are showing and reflecting the changing uh, attitudes that people have towards uh, cannabis. Uh, and that's one of the reasons we wanted to do our own research and, and talk to people directly. I think the pandemic really did change people's attitudes. I think there were a lot of different ways in which people were looking to consume. Yes. Um, we also know that, that edibles became quite popular. Indeed. Uh, obviously, we have a, a, res- a respiratory uh, a virus and people are, are locked up at, at home and maybe they want to consume without everyone in the family knowing that they're consuming. Uh, but maybe they also have um, uh, ailments. You know, we know that there are a lot of patients in British Columbia um, that choose edibles or tinctures uh, because it, it delivers the, the medicine they need in ways that um, consuming uh, cannabis through, through smoking doesn't. That's so, true. Yep. I think there's a lot of reasons there. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, but uh, uh, just in terms of the pure reality of a, of a pandemic, uh, sharing, uh, passing the, uh, the joint around a circle of people suddenly becomes a pretty repulsive possibility to a lot of people who otherwise would have happily joined that circuit. No, thank you. No, no, I'm good. It's okay. Uh, and so it really has caused us to change habits hasn't it oh absolutely absolutely there was the old the old uh, line puff puff pass and i think it's now just puff puff but again uh, with legal uh, sales going on across canada uh, and here in british columbia again sales doubling year after year and it's likely that that is going to increase and i think what's happened is that people have uh, perhaps who, who experimented back in the day when they were in their college heyday and all the rest of it have come back in some cases only to discover sean oh my gosh it's nothing like what it used to be this is really strong stuff <laughs> and and, and it's taken a whole reintroduction to uh, to to the substance period because it's been in many cases decades since they bothered to to consume. I I think you raise a really great point there, and and it's one of the reasons that we we wanted to take a look at this research, and we wanted to test what Canadians felt about having retail locations in their stores. And the good news is they overwhelmingly support. And sure. one of the big reasons there is that they want to go down and talk to someone. They want to understand what it is they're, they're purchasing and consuming, its effects, its behaviors. Because you're right, it's not exactly the way it was maybe 20, 30 years ago. Right. But the good news there is that now those folks are coming out. They're coming downtown, hopefully, as we start to emerge from uh, our lockdown situations and go downtown, have a conversation, learn about some product products, come back, have it say, well, that didn't work for me or it did work for me. Can I can I get some more? And then they visit the shops next door. They visit the cafe. They hang out downtown and it becomes a much more social experience rather than, oh, I, I, I got something that I don't know about. Right, yeah. Wow, this stuff's really strong and sitting at home. Indeed. And what it's, it's not an uncommon thing to go to a wine shop, for example, and be looking at a, a, a rack of wine and have someone come over and say, can I help you make a selection? Anything you, you need to know about? And, and very helpful uh, providing you with the information you went to the store to get. So why wouldn't that option and that information be available to you at a cannabis store? It makes perfect sense, right? It sure does, and and you used a great analogy for me because I'm the kind of person that goes into a wine shop and says, well, that label looks nice, and that's what I purchased. So <laughs> I always have to talk to somebody. So I appreciate being able to do the same in a cannabis shop. So what else have you learned, Sean, canvassing Canadians about their cannabis 
curiosity? Well, we one thing that we really learned, and and we weren't surprised, but we, it strengthened our our understanding. Was you know, British Columbia has a long and deep uh, connection to the cannabis community, um, and a lot of support. Um, of course, there's a lot of growing going on there as well. So it has a really rich culture. So it wasn't surprising to see that that British Columbia trended more favorable than other provinces like. Um, uh, Quebec, where mm-hmm. it has more restricted, uh, restrictive policy. So that, w- that was affirming. I will say that uh, about it. The other was just how ha- we always felt that the sentiments and the misperceptions around, you know, cannabis shops are coming into our neighborhoods and they're going to change the, the, the whole life, the, the feel, look and feel of the, the neighborhood. We right. felt that that was overblown. We just didn't understand how much actually Canadian support these shops in their neighborhoods. And that was also really affirming. So um, those, those things were, I wouldn't say that we were completely shocked or surprised by anything, but we had, we got a lot of uh, confirmation of, of what we already suspected. Interesting stuff. Uh, Sean, let me just put the shoe on the other foot for a second. Uh, your New York Senator Schumer, the majority leader now, has advanced some degree of, uh, of legislation re- re- regarding the national legalization of cannabis and its derivatives across the United States, not likely to make it through either house. But what is the sentiment nationally in the United States uh, with respect to cannabis legalization, is it is going to, going to be more of a tussle than it was here in Canada? I suspect yes. Well, uh, the, what Senator Schumer is doing right now, I think, is really important and really smart. He's introduced a bill to uh, start the conversation and get feedback from the public, which uh, I think is really important. Cannabis has deep roots, deep cultures, and it's really important that the, everyone gets to have their their say. I know. Canada is about to do their three-year review in October, and, and I think that's also important. So it's it's part of the process of getting that going. So while it may not have um, viability in this in this uh, Congress or or maybe even the next, um, it, it is important to start that conversation. That's that's what we're doing. But we see this uh, issue poll positively in every jurisdiction that we, we operate. I mean, New Jersey passed their referendum yep. constitutional amendment plus sixty seven percent. But also South Dakota uh, passed their ballot initiative. And those are two very different places. No so kidding. I think the sentiment is, oh, sure, yeah, uh, in one fell swoop uh, as well. Uh, they did both medical and uh, adult use uh, in, in on the same, same ballot, and, and both passed. Interesting stuff. Sean, I must leave it there. I'm grateful for your time on the weekend. Uh, thanks for this, and we'll definitely talk again. Interesting conversation. Enjoyed it a lot. Thank you so much. I appreciate you uh, having me on, and uh, have a great long weekend. Greg Taylor is back with us today. Mr. Taylor has a company called Fish First Consulting. Greg is also a member of the Watershed Watch Salmon Society, and it's here to is with us to do a bit of a salmon update. Greg, good morning and welcome back. Good to have you with us again. Yes, it's uh, nice to talk to you again, Sterling. Uh, well, last time we talked, we, we were talking about uh, the uh, announcement by the Minister of uh, Fisheries, uh, Bernadette Jordan, talking about a 60% closure of the commercial fishery uh, in British Columbia in 2021. Uh, and you uh, were, have done some follow-up work on that announcement, which was pretty dramatic uh, at, at its time. Uh, and tell us what you found in terms of the, the follow-up to the announcement, Greg, please. Well, uh, as you said, the minister made a, a, a 
you know, dramatic announcement that 60% of uh, commercial fisheries would be closed in 2021, and these would be long-term closures. Um, that represents 79 different individual closures. Actually, when they actually published their integrated fisheries management plans for 2021, only 13 fisheries were closed. Mm. So instead of 60%, uh, it turns out uh, actual closures were about 9%. So it is, um, and it really speaks to, a, I think, a, a conflict between the tensions of the minister and the uh, willingness of the, of the Pacific region managers to follow through. I think there's a, I don't think there's, they're on the same, exactly on the same page as to what's going to happen here. So interesting. So there's a clear disconnect, again, between the the good intentions, and we all know what the road to hell is paved with, but nonetheless, the good intentions of the minister to really seriously readjust salmon fishing in British Columbia and her uh, ministry employees responsible for implementing the intentions and stated policy, the disconnect is clear, If, if well, uh, at least from where I'm sitting. Well, I've had in-depth conversations with both parties, and it's clear uh, there is a disconnect. And uh, I'm I'm unsure how this is going to work out. Uh, I think the minister, you're absolutely correct, has good intentions of resetting how we commercialize on on this coast. Mm-hmm. Um, but the managers who are tied with their clients are are saying that, well, not so fast. Uh, these closures are likely may not happen, and they'll happen in a different way, in a different time frame, and uh, so, and certainly not this year. So, yeah, I'm not sure what's going to happen, but there is a disconnect, and there may be, which is really what worries me, I think there's a huge opportunity to reset commercial fishing. I don't think all commercial fishing needs to be ended forever. Right, sure. Uh, uh, no, uh, I think we just have to reset. I mean, these commercial fisheries, they're stoned, they're designed in 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. The world's changed. Climate change, salmon abundance, all changed. Sure. Commercial fishing stayed the same. This is an opportunity to change them, make them more selective, monitor them better, do a much better job of managing for the future to give fishers an opportunity, those who want to stay in, uh, to continue. And it also helps our food security, and it provides good sources of food to us so we should be able to commercially fish but we can't do it the way we're doing now and i'm really worried the uh, region here is going to squander an opportunity well you know and it seems that if there is if the if there seems to be a communications issue between the minister's office in ottawa and the ministry offices in british columbia up and down the coast to even follow the directives as ordered uh, as they stand, if they can't even pull that off, Greg, how on earth could they ever pull off a reconsideration of how we fish? Well, it, it, I think we can do it. Uh, I tr- maybe I'm just a foolish optimist. I've been in the fishing business too long, and to be in the fishing business, you've got to be an optimist. Absolutely. But, but uh, I do believe we could pull it off, but you need the right incentive uh, structures. I'll give you a really quick example. The ground fish fishery uh, in our on our coast was probably the worst fishery you could imagine all uh, a couple de- decades ago. What did DFO finally do? They said, guys, enough excuses, we're closing it. And they right. closed it and said, we're not going to reopen it until you fix it. Everybody said it was impossible. 
And six months later, we fixed it and had a new fishery. And that fishery is now renowned around the world as most one of the more sustainable uh, commercial fisheries on the planet. Right. So we have hard evidence that we can do this, right? Oh, oh yeah, but you need the right incentive. No one's going to take on the hard work of changing these fisheries and adapting them and moving to different gear and taking new investments. No one's going to do it uh, unless they're, they're faced with you do it or else. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, again, uh, there's – and again, it comes to clout, I suppose. If, if there is a directive from Ottawa that is supposed to be implemented but eventually gets so watered down as to be almost ineffective, how much – how much credibility then, because you talk to these people all the time, Greg, how much credibility do they have left with what's left of the industry? Well, you know, the industry itself, itself, I've talked to the industry and they're confused too. They're not sure which way they're going. And they hear one thing from the minister and hear another thing from the managers. So they're sitting on their hands they're sure. trying to figure this out like the rest of us. Um, it's just, uh, yeah, it's it's an unfortunate situation that uh has developed and it's not a you know and it's uh, as you said there's good intentions i think in ottawa and there's just and it's not like they're these are bad people and managers they're just tied to the status quo Mm -hmm. and to get them to move is going to take they're just going to have to be told do your job uh, and do you think there's the will? I'm not, I'm, it's, uh, it's a kind of a loaded question here, Greg. So let me let me add a little powder to it uh, because this is we're obviously heading towards some kind of election finish here before the calendar year is over. Uh, is this enough of an important issue for British Columbians that it should be on the discussion table during the election campaign. The government of Canada isn't going to want to talk about this for two seconds, you know. I know, and it it, it is a bit disturbing. Although you read the recent polls that came out, one of the most uh, important issues to British Columbians is the state of their salmon. Yes, and and concern over the salmon. So I think it should can and should be, and and hopefully will be an election issue that who's going to stand up for our salmon because really standing up for our salmon in the time of the climate crisis is standing up for all of us because we're really talking about protecting our habitats and doing what's right in terms of when we're protecting salmon, we're protecting our cities, we're protecting our communities, we're protecting our water. Right. So it should be, uh, I think, uh, a major election issue. But, you know, uh, elections happen and if there are different party comes in and a different strategy will unfold i guess indeed uh greg about halfway through this uh, calendar year uh how are we doing uh, give us a, a 90 second 90 seconds left here tell us how we are this summer so far because we have made some uh, some changes there have been some closures of fish farms there there are slow changes underway how are we doing how's how's the salmon this summer well, salmon are doing uh, not very well this summer, um, but it was not unexpected. Uh, we expected a very poor year, but it looks like it's unfolding, unfortunately, like we uh, like we thought. Um, not many fish coming back. A little, little bit of bright light where I'm involved still up in the Skeena River where we're seeing uh, some reasonable escapements of sockeye, which may allow us some fishing opportunities, but... Other than that, uh, it looks pretty, 
pretty bleak for commercial fishing. Recreational fishing, of course, has continued unabated. Right. Um, on the south coast, uh, we've talked about the issues there. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's these endangered Chinook, for instance, coming back to the Fraser River, look extraordinarily poor. The good news is big bar is uh, the water levels are uh, uh, well down, allowing good passage through That's big right. Bar They're getting year. through there. That's right. So that's really good news. Water temperatures, believe it or not, uh, are elevated, but not as high as they could because smoke helps. Right. Because, of course, the sun get, doesn't get to the, the fresh water, the stream uh, as effectively. And so, so things are looking a little bit better in terms of the uh, environment are these very poor runs are going to come back to. So crossing our fingers for the future. But, you know, Sterling, we talk about DFO all the time. But nothing's going to happen without the province coming to the table. Because really, it's when we're talking about our salmon, we're all talking about habitat. In our constitution, that's all provincial. And they have not come to the table. Good morning. We're going to spend the first half hour of Money Talks just talking about how hot we were yesterday. <laughs> then we'll bring on more people talking about how hot they were. And then we'll ask the question, hot enough for you? Mm, I see. <laughs> Does it sum up what my day was like yesterday uh, with yeah, everyone well, else's? <laughs> oh, no kidding. We, well, I spent the day hiding in the shade in the house. Mm. It was it was crazy. It's yeah. uh, uh, By the way, part of the week that was that we're looking at now saw the Canadian dollar squeak just a whisker back above 80 cents. And the governor of the Bank of Canada, Michael, uh, commit once again uh, to keeping inflation under control. It's on the Financial Post today several times times. Uh, What is this reassurance from Tiff Macklem all about? Does he assume or is he concerned that the population of Canada is uh, on pins and needles about runaway inflation? Well, I think when people go to do the, you know, the particular item, for example, this past week, we also had StatsCan coming out talking about how much building costs, you know, like supplies and labor had gone up, Uh, you know, something like 19% in the second quarter compared to the second quarter of a year ago. And, uh, you know, right across the country, <laughs> excuse me, every major market had a problem. Calgary was over 31% change in labor and materials for houses. And that comes back to, of course, people's concern about affordable housing. Mm-hmm. So it'd be pretty difficult to get into that side of things and not go, inflation's killing me. You know, if you're uh, in the construction business and you're building and developing new houses and you've got a fixed uh price you know that you've you've made a deal the buyer says okay this is going to cost me 300 grand right and then this inflation hits and of course we did chronicle lumber's come back down significantly but we did chronicle the rise in lumber prices i mean gosh they were 220 dollars you know at uh, the low last year Mm -hmm. in the second quarter and there were 1700 dollars at the high in this past second quarter and then they dropped back down uh, you know, but still up significantly from a year ago. But that, that's just an example. And then keep in mind, when you talk about building costs, every time you get one of these price increases, well, so does the GST, PST cost go up sure. also. Yeah. Well, of course, we've seen that at the gasoline pump. And the people are going, what do you mean this is 1% or 2% inflation? You know, when you fill up with the gas tank, a lot of times at the grocery store, I'm I'm shocked. I don't do the, you know, a ton of grocery shopping, but I might be in there once a week. And I look at the cost of blueberries and I quickly phone the bank to see if I can get a mortgage, (laughs) you know, Uh, and I think other people feel that way and they have this experience, you know, so it's really fascinating when the Bank of Canada comes out and they have been and they have in the US, the central bank are saying, no, don't worry, this is any kind of blip, 
It's just temporary. And they may be right. We may see a little bit of a sag down like lumber prices, but we'll still be at a higher level than we were a year ago. So, yeah, I just found it interesting that he was talking the way you're, you're alluding to. And then I had looked at the StatsCan report this this week on building, and people care about affordable housing. Well, well it is not, it's not happening. It's not coming when you have this kind of pricing. Well, and, and, and maybe it is the case then, as we certainly, and it's a good example to use the cost of food to say nothing of lumber, and that's fluctuating up and down. It's likely to go back up again. But nonetheless, as we see pretty much the cost of living, and gasoline is another good example, 169.9 this weekend. Um, it, 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 yes, maybe we are more concerned about inflation than we imagine ourselves to be could that concern translate into election talk because inflation is going to be whacked by higher taxes by this time next year we'll all be paying higher taxes something the government of canada does not want to talk about during the election campaign yeah, there's a couple of things around that. Is one in the states, by the way, they feel that's going to have a, a, a significant impact if these prices remain. If it re- and this is, you know, we've chatted about this one before. Is that I I can't remember a debate within the economic community, like some fine analysts, excellent analysts, but on both sides of the inflation coin, there's the one side saying, "Don't worry, once we get past this in- initial bounce in inflation, things will settle back right. down. It's yep. transitory." I've heard and that, then, but I've seen some super quality people with great track record saying, no, they're nuts. This is persistent. This is going to stay with us. Mm-hmm. And they point to things like, it looks like that semiconductor shortage, which has uh, changed car production, for example. We've had uh, several major car producers saying, we are not get, we have to cut back on production That's because right. of a semiconductor shortage. That pushes prices up. So they point to things like that, saying that that's not temporary. That thing is getting extended. Used to be it will be a three-month shortage. Then it was wait till the end of the year. Now we're talking into 2022. That'll push prices up. And then, sorry, I just want to get this in. <clears throat> Excuse me. And keep in mind what the Bank of Canada isn't measuring necessarily what you and I would consider inflation. Like, like for example, the cost of a house. We go, are you kidding? Average house price is up 20%. What is it? 25%. Well, how can you have inflation? Well, they don't measure that. That's not part of their index. So, you know, a lot of times that's also what happens. It's what what exactly are we talking about when we say inflation? Mm. Um, it's going to be interesting in the States, for example. There's a huge debate going on right this second and uh, about the moratorium on evictions, you know, for rent. Which just came off, right. Yes. And President Biden, I, I think it was kind of a lame or weak kind of, oh, let's extend it because he didn't do it soon enough for the House to act. So that's just come off. That's going to be fascinating to see what happens within their market. And it's different cities again. Uh, also, we have to talk about services versus products, that kind of inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have to talk about that when someone asks me about economic growth. I say, are you talking about products? Are you talking about services? Because I think services take a longer time to recover here, especially uh, with the new scares about the Delta variant. Definitely. So, you know, it's all complicated within that. And that's why I'm a terrible guest, Sterling, because <laughs> I just confuse people. That's my goal. Well, thank goodness know? they give you your own show, so you don't yes. have to be a terrible guest. You get to be the host and do whatever yeah. the heck you want. So tell and us what you're up to today. It's, it's a 90-minute end, and there he goes. He's confused me again. Uh, Brett Holiday's with me, and it's one of those conversations I really look forward to. Brent's the head of Garibaldi Capital, which helps finance uh, you know, mostly, uh, virtually all in the tech uh, sphere, 
and he's a great uh, guest. Brent is a fascinating, uh, giving you up to date on where the opportunities are. You know, have we overextended? See, the big problem with investment is not that you don't like the story. It's what price you're paying for it. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we may agree on a car and we say, that's a fabulous car, but I'm not paying 50 grand for that. Mm -hmm. I'm not paying 20 grand. Absolutely the same thing. So the tech story is a wonderful story. How much should we be paying for that story? And where are the new developments coming? What hasn't been priced into the market? So Brent's a fascinating discussion. And I'm going to start with talking about uh, an interesting challenge. We both noticed, I'm sure, the huge divisions within the country. Polls tell us the Canadians think that we're more divided than ever. We have a federal election coming up. I got a solution for those divisions. Plus, I got Mike Levy with me. I've got uh, Victor Dare. I've got Ozzy. Oh, my goodness. Even just saying that gets me excited. It's always a pleasure to say good morning to the voice of the Vancouver Whitecaps on AM 730, Corey Basso, because it's game day. Corey, good morning. The fantastic Mr. Fox. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm fine, thank you. Uh, it's it's an unusual game day because it's a home game for the Whitecaps who have to travel to Utah to be at home after being actually in Vancouver for a few days. It's getting a little weird out there. A lot. Watch the Blue Jays uh, begin their home stand last night in Toronto, Corey. Uh, you must be getting pretty excited about the Whitecaps beginning their home stand in a matter of just a few short weeks. Yeah, absolutely, Sterling. And, and you're right, it is a little bit of a fussy scenario right now, but I think the Whitecaps would rather, you know, spend time training in Vancouver at the facilities that I did get a chance to go back and visit with it now open to media for uh, those sessions to go and capture audio. And yeah, we have to be 20 feet away from the players at certain times, and there isn't a lot of the usual kind of um, buddying up that we would do in the past where we, where we would be able to get close to players and have chats with them and what have you. So it's a little bit stiff in that regard, but right. it's all for a good reason. It's all the safety protocols and what have you. Sure. Um, but yeah, we're getting, we're getting set and we're getting ramped up for return to BC place. And I've had to go through my paces behind the scenes with the, the chorus higher ups and the white caps higher ups to make sure that we're all squared away and ready to go technically and um, everything in the booth uh, with regards to that kind of stuff at BC place. And of course it will all be set up for the BC lines already. So we won't, have to do too, too much moving and shaking as far as the white caps and our broadcast is concerned. But the checklist is, is slowly getting ticked off. Sterling and August 21st can't come soon enough. That's right. Exactly. That's three weeks from today, as a matter of fact, down there at BC Place Stadium. And you know what? Again, back to the Blue Jays game in Toronto, just briefly, Corey. I don't know who was more excited about being there at Rogers Center. The players on the field, the fans in the stands, or the broadcasters up in the booth. They hadn't been to a baseball game for uh, well over a year. So I'm thinking you and Colin are going to be pretty jacked three weeks from tonight when the Whitecaps and their fans all come together at BC Place. Yeah, and me and Colin are jacked just to call games any which way. You could you could say we could hear the game through a tin can and a string and we'd still be able to, we'd still be jacked up and ready to do it for the audience for sure. sure. But it does, it does make a difference, Sterling, especially I feel in soccer, a live crowd versus a let's say, a, tech, a technologically piped-in crowd. Yeah. Um, it, it does make the difference, the rawness of the crowd, the sound, the emotion. Um, there's just something about it that you, that you, you just can't match, even with the, the best technology these days with, with the screens and the, the audios that were being sent. And it does, it does really do a good job for our away matches, but it, you can't replicate that home atmosphere. So, yes, the fans will be enjoying fish and chips. The players will be enjoying the match, but... Colin Miller and myself will also be joining that that return to BC Place, which is well overdue. Now, between now and then, there's a little matter of Minnesota tonight. Uh, tell us what you expect to, to see. It's going you know to be a really good match because I think last I think the Whitecaps feel a little bit hard done by by the soccer gods. Last time they 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 
Paulie played Minnesota the last time they played them back in May, but Minnesota managed to escape with a 1-0 result, and it kind of turned the fortunes for both clubs. It was a little bit of a, uh, a turning point, uh, uh, what do they call it, uh, something in the space-time continuum, if I can use a back-to-the-future line, where everything kind of changed. Um, Minnesota had been winless. They hadn't had a single point in their first five matches, but then when they beat the Whitecaps 1-0, all of a sudden things turned around. Yeah, right. I, don't think, I think they have one loss in their last 10 matches, and they're in a playoff spot right now, so... Um, it's it going to be a, a different example. team to see tonight, then, for the Caps, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it's, it was weird because it, it's a real example of what can happen in the MLS. A lot can change over three or four matches if you really do your business or if you go on a, a little bit of a slide, which you saw the Whitecaps after having a good start to their season. They did the opposite of Minnesota. After that 1-0 loss, they went into a bit of a slump and they're slowly starting to climb their way out of here. But I think it's a fairly even match uh, on the pitch anyways. I think it's going to be a tight one. I, I'd probably guess a, a 2-1 affair either way. But okay. um, I, I think it's going to be a fairly tight affair. I don't think it's going to be the running gun that we've seen from the Whitecaps against the likes of the Galaxy and even LAFC last week, and I think it's going to be a little bit of a, a chess match tonight, but uh, it should be a good one either way. Very quickly, Corey, uh, Phil Fig, our producer here, mad, mad Whitecaps fan, says there's been a major signing here. The Scottish Messi has been picked up by the Whitecaps. Uh, tell us, at 30 seconds, do us the elevator speech version of what this signing means to the team. And who is it? it? A, it's Ryan Gold. He's a young Scottish lad who came up... Uh, Mostly well-known for his time at Dundee United. Of course, he spent time at Sporting Lisbon, Hibs in Scotland, and he comes from Firenze on loan. And it's what the Whitecaps need. They never need a number 10, which is an attacking midfielder, to kind of link up play. And yeah, Dahomey and Caicedo and, and the likes of Caio Alessandre, now Brian White, have done well up top. But I think Ryan Gold will really kind of fill that little space in between the forwards and the midfield that will help create more attacks and hopefully get the Whitecaps looking a little bit slicker in the goal column. Mr. McComb is a supervisor for Parks Operations with Metro Vancouver, and he's a busy guy on a Saturday morning in the middle of a long weekend, as you might appreciate. Tom, thanks very much for uh, for persisting and getting through. It's good of you to join us. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm well, thank you, sir. We know that Stanley Park is now closed overnight as of uh, as effective yesterday, and that the fire regional district rating in all parks in Metro Vancouver is extreme. So, Tom, what can we and what can't we do this weekend in Metro Vancouver parks? Yes, um, that's certainly true. We're, we're in extreme, and we haven't experienced this kind of uh, uh, this kind of indice for a very long time. I think the key messages here for for folks um, are to really comply with our posted signs and fire danger guidelines. That really means, you know, make sure you're you're reading uh, the directions in the park. Um, we're looking to have people be aware of spark and ignition sources. Uh, we want you to stay on designated trails. Um, if you if you uh, report a, if you see a wildfire, call nine one one right away and alert regional park staff uh do not smoke in metro vancouver regional parks right green race or um period uh do, don't light uh, campfires or briquette barbecues or stoves um those are sort of the key messages and that's a big one too isn't it tom because i live in new westminster and queen's park of course is the local jewel in the in the crown and it's it's been fun over these past few weeks once the uh, we reached uh, this uh, third level and people were allowed to go out to parks and uh, at queen's park in these last few weekends tom my gosh every picnic table in the park has been taken and you see a lot of hibachis and barbecues and so on all being part of thing people can enjoy a beer now with a burger that kind of thing but 
now that we've reached this point of so many days without any rain, all of the fun that we've been looking forward to having in the parks has to be pulled back a little bit. We can still go. We can still let the kids play in the water uh, park area. We just can't take the hibachi with us, right? Exactly. Uh, really, open flame is is the issue. Um, any any uh, accident with open flame in this environment is deadly. Sure. Uh, and so uh, we we look to uh, local fire chiefs that have the the authority to implement restrictions. Um, and uh, in the green spaces, these local bands take precedent over any Metro Vancouver guidelines. So essentially, it's a uh, it's a direction from the local fire department in terms of uh, that kind of use. And, and I would but assume at the entrance of every park, as is the case with Queen's Park, there are now special directions that are on the sign, you know, welcome to the park, and then here are the new rules kind of thing. So as you go into any city park, look for those signs, right? Exactly, and adhere to them. But, and that's 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 the key, isn't it? Tom, you're a very busy man. We are grateful for uh, giving us a few moments on a super busy weekend. Uh, we hope that we don't have too much to talk about by way of negative behavior and hope that everyone is compliant uh, and, and is able still to enjoy our parks. Thanks for this this morning very much. You bet. Thank you. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.